0: There was Baroness Rothschild, Marie von Hute. Oh, I should have practiced these before. I don't know how to say these. Okay. Hey there. Thanks for listening to SheBuilds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Today, we're talking about Beatrix Farron, the first female landscape architect in the U.S. I'm
1: Lizzie Rar from San Francisco. I'm Nergiri Rivas, celebrating the last days of my 20s Woo! <laughs> in Houston, <laughs> Texas.
2: <laughs> and I'm Jessica Rogers, coming to you from Washington, D.C.
0: All right. As always, before we begin, a quick disclaimer. We are not historians or experts.
1: Yes. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, Please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning together. All right. So today we're talking about Beatrix Ferrand,
0: who was the first female landscape architect in the U.S. She had a career spanning 50 years and worked on over 200 projects.
1: That's interesting. Last time we talked about Mariana Van Rensselaer, who helped create the profession. And then today we'll talk about the person who actually did it. Yep. Nice. She was
0: born Beatrix Cadwallader Jones in New York City in 1872. She was an only child and her parents both came from wealthy families that dated back to the American Revolution. Her mother, Minnie, was a social reformer and advocated for better hospital conditions and for nurses to get professional recognition. And her mother also ran in the same circles with artists, sculptors, and writers like Henry James.
2: Ooh, fancy. What about her papa?
0: (laughs) So Beatrix's father, Freddie, was part of the Jones family. Do you guys know the phrase keeping up with the Joneses?
1: Yeah, like comparing yourself to neighbors, trying to keep up with status, style and stuff, right? Yep. So that phrase was started because of
0: Beatrix's family, the Joneses. They were so wealthy and high up the social ladder that other society families were trying to essentially climb the ladder, were said to be keeping up with them.
1: That's so interesting. Right. Can
2: we also point out that Minnie and Freddie Jones, they sound like fun people. (laughs) They do. True. They do. I don't want to party with them.
0: (laughs) So another fun family history fact, her father's great great grandfather General Ebenezer Stevens was one of the people who helped tip the tea into the Boston Harbor during the Boston Tea Party.
2: Mm. What? Okay, so talk about being part of history. Right? Like the (laughs) great-great-grandfather keeping up with the Joneses.
0: (laughs) Right? So Ebenezer was said to have the best garden in old New York, and Beatrix's grandparents had an estate called Pencraig in Newport, Rhode Island. And it had the first espaliered or trellised fruit garden in Newport. All of this to say is that five generations of Beatrix's family were gardeners. So it was in her blood. And it's not surprising that she ended up in the profession she did. Naturally. So growing up, Beatrix would spend the summers at her grandparents' house, Pencrag. She loved spending time in the gardens with her aunt Edith, aka the author Edith Wharton, who we mentioned in last week's episode.
2: Yes. We briefly talked about Edith in last week's episode when we were talking about Mariana. So we both know that they were both in high society. But did you know that Edith Wharton that we have been talking about was actually the Edith Wharton that was the author and playwright? She was actually the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. Oh, yeah. We just throwing out firsts all through this. First season.
1: Yeah. Yeah. First season, first ladies. Uh, yeah. That's
0: so true. So when Beatrix was four years old, her grandmother taught her the names of the different flowers and how to care for them by taking off dead blooms or pruning. Beatrix would talk about the different rose varieties as if they were her friends. There was Baroness Rothschild, Marie von Haut, and Bon Silent, to name a few.
1: Wait a minute. So... Are those the names of actual types of roses or are those names that she came up for them? Like mine are Susie Succulent and Gabrielle Garlic. <laughs> I also
2: have Ali the aloe vera parent. Do
1: you? That's true.
2: Yeah. No. <laughs> no,
1: those are real types of roses, like different variety names. Oh. oh, those are such nice names. They sound like real people. No wonder she treated them as friends. Yeah. <laughs> So when she was seven, her
0: father took the family to Bar Harbor on Mount Desert Island in Maine for the first time. They ended up building an estate there called Reef Point, and Beatrix watched her mother lay out the gardens and the grounds of the property. She would explore the woods and transplant things that she found into the gardens. Mm -hmm. When she was 10, her father sadly left their family and went to live in Paris with his mistress.
1: (gasps) Ooh, scandal. Drama.
0: Drama! (laughs) I know. (laughs) Apparently, he was not very discreet with his indiscretions either, and most of society in New York knew about it and were gossiping about it. His family were actually horrified by their son's behavior and supported Beatrix's mother, their daughter-in-law. One of Minnie's biggest supporters with the scandal was her sister-in-law, Edith Wharton. And they remained good Mm. friends for years. And Minnie was actually Edith's literary agent. Not so scandalous. (laughs) And so her parents actually didn't divorce until years later when she was 24. But I think it still left a stain since it was so public. People didn't get divorced in those days. And there was definitely a stigma associated with it. It might have had something to do with Beatrix wanting to go make a life for herself outside of the society world that she was born into.
2: Yeah, uh, she was probably hesitant to get married after that, too, if knowing that there's this possibility to get divorced. Sure.
0: So you all remember Mariana Van Rensselaer from last week's episode. Mm -hmm. Well, Mariana made the comment in one of her writings, a landscape gardener is a gardener, an engineer and an artist who, like an architect, considers beauty and utility together. That spoke to Beatrix and made her start thinking about landscape architecture and studying horticulture.
1: I've never heard the term landscape gardener. Is it different from landscape architect?
0: At the time, no. Beatrix called herself a landscape gardener, but she was working as what we know as a landscape architect and was part of the start of organizations for that profession. Okay. Many universities were not taking female students at the time. But she met Charles Sprague Sargent, and he invited her to apprentice under him in 1893. This was her first real experience with landscape design. Charles was the first director and curator of the Arnold Arboretum at Harvard University in Boston. Frederick Law Olmsted and Charles Sargent designed the Arboretum, and it's the oldest public Mm. arboretum in the
2: U.S. It is so interesting. There's like so much overlap from what we... I've heard with Mariana. I love it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mariana and Beatrix clearly ran in the same circles. Mm -hmm. During the same year, Beatrix went with Charles and his wife to visit the World's Fair in Chicago. And she's been quoted saying that the trip was what first led me to think seriously of landscape gardening. So I know we mentioned the World's Fair or the Columbian Exposition a bit last week, but a little more background Mm -hmm. on it. It's a pretty well-known event generally but it was very significant architecturally. And some people might have read the book, The Devil in the White City, which follows the architect Daniel Burnham and others in the planning of this event alongside a more sinister plot that happened leading up to and during the fair. Did either
2: of you read that? Yeah, so I've started it, but I never finished it. But now I feel like I should finish reading the book.
1: I I actually placed a hold on it in my library. So I'm like 16 weeks out. I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. You should definitely finish it, Jessica. And yes, Nergiti, you should yeah. read
0: it. It's a really good book. And you really understand I what will. a huge undertaking it was, especially the landscaping, which was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. Yeah. Okay, but enough about them. Yes, enough about them. Yeah. So, Beatrix. This sparked a desire for her to do landscape architecture. She actually had the opportunity to visit Olmsted's offices at the end of her apprenticeship with Sargent. She saw the men drafting and surveying, which she didn't know how to do. And the Columbia School of Mines, which is now the School of Engineering, didn't allow women. Shocker. So she hired one of the faculty members to tutor her in drafting and surveying at home so she could learn those skills.
2: Ooh, oh. making her own way. I love yeah. it. Yeah,
0: yeah, how resourceful.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So after her apprenticeship, she traveled around Europe with her mother and Aunt Edith to study gardens in England, France, Italy, and Algiers. When she returned to the States, she opened a design office in her home in New York City in 1896. She was only 23 years old when she did this.
1: Can you imagine that? Wait, what? Uh, this whole time she's only 23 years yeah. old? Yeah. Oh my gosh. When I was 23 years old, I was selling tacos, looking for jobs in architecture firms.
2: <laughs> yeah. We had just graduated by then. Yeah.
1: Goodness gracious. Oh, man. <laughs> let's, let's
0: continue. Oh. I can't imagine my own firm.
2: Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah right?
0: <laughs> she was brave. She was very brave. <laughs> so in order to start getting some jobs, she used her high society connections at first, but in no time she was designing gardens for clients with estates in Newport, the Berkshires, and Maine.
2: You know, some things just never change. A lot of business is done that way. Right. Like all through the connections that you have yeah, and
1: referrals,
2: things like that. hmm.
1: Yeah. But doesn't that say something, too, about how men have the advantage because they're a majority in our profession and they can network among themselves and refer to each other when talking to clients and whatnot.
2: Yeah, that is so true. And I think that's what makes Beatrix so fortunate in this case, right? Because of her connections and these high society circles that she was rolling in. And um, so she was able to make those connections. And that's how she was able to move forward in her career. Yeah,
1: that's so true. Luckily. In 1899,
0: the American Society of Landscape Architects was founded. And Beatrix was one of the 11 founding members and the only woman.
1: Nice. Wow. So she was really one of the early proponents of the profession. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. She was at the forefront of landscape design as a more concrete profession. Beatrix created the professional model for other landscape practices to follow. Also, her work in the field combined with the craft of gardening, the science of plants and the art of design. Ellen Biddle Shipman and Marion Kruger Coffin, other early women landscape architects, both based their practices on Beatrix's
2: model. Hmm. Sounds very familiar to the philosophies of Mariana, too.
0: Yeah, they definitely shared similar ideas about the profession. Mm -hmm. So in 1912, Beatrix received her first major commission from Princeton University. She was going to plan the grounds for the new graduate college. She designed a master plan for the whole campus and became the first consulting landscape architect for the university, and she kept that job for over 30 years. She was so well-known on the campus that students lovingly called her the Bushwoman, which does not sound <laughs> loving to me, but I'll try to believe no. the
2: source material that I found. <laughs> yeah, my mind goes to too many it's, places. Yeah. Um I would just say that she was probably just was considered today's plant I would
0: agree. That sounds that's what I'll think of it as. (laughs) She was the plant lady. (laughs) Let's keep it PG. Yes. Yeah. So Beatrix was involved with (laughs) many university campuses across the country over her career. She had some very long standing relationships overseeing the gardens at these campuses. She supervised Yale University's grounds for 23 years and the University of Chicago's for 14 years. She helped create campus grounds for Oberlin College, Vassar, Hamilton College, and the California Institute of Technology. She also acted as the advisor for the Arnold Arboretum of Harvard, where she had initially done her apprenticeship.
1: So she was not only involved in the design of these spaces, but also the maintenance of her vision. Very, very interesting. Can you imagine if we were able to do that with our designs to make sure? for even a decade that owners don't go changing things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that would be very interesting, or at least to be part of like the evolution of the spaces. Cause I guess with landscaping, right? The plants are obviously going to change and the landscape and whatnot. So there's more kind of involved in watching the evolution of the space. For Beatrix, the first step in her design process was to sit down with the clients and discuss their needs and likes. She felt that a design evolved and the garden was not set in stone. She worked with the gardeners and clients for years after projects were complete, which is evident through her work on the college campuses for so many years.
1: Gardens are also living, breathing things, so they really do grow and evolve. That must be so challenging and amazing as a designer to take into account. I'm excited to look at the show notes for pictures of her work. Yeah, (laughs)
0: You really have to understand what the plans will be like in the long term and envision that early on for something like this. And I read something Mm -hmm. that said landscape design is the slowest of the performing arts.
1: Oh, it's so poetic. I never thought Mm -hmm. about it like that. I'm appreciating this profession more and more through Beatrix.
2: Mm. Yeah, me too. Because, yeah, like to think of like all the different seasons that plants go through. -hmm. And like, or even just like, you plant the stuff, but it still takes a while for things to bloom, or to be full size, things like that.
1: Mm -hmm. And they die. Like, I planted these things (laughs) in my garden, and they just died. I'm so disheartened. I can't imagine doing it again. I know. I think it's also
0: like choosing which plants will do well in which space, Mm -hmm. right? And that kind of thing. Being
2: smart about which plants you choose. There's a lot of variables. Yeah. And no, Judy, don't lose hope because it's still performing. That's right. Right. Because like I have some plants that, you know, for a second, I thought they were goners. But, you know, I gave them a little bit of love and now they're like coming back strong. So okay. it's all a performance. I'll see. <laughs> So in 1913,
0: Woodrow Wilson became president and his wife, Ellen, made plans mm-hmm. for the East and West Gardens of the White House. So the Army Corps of Engineers are the ones in charge of the design of the White House grounds. But Ellen reviewed their designs and decided she'd rather have Beatrix design them.
2: Ooh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. But unfortunately, Ellen died 17 months later. So the plans were halted. But in 1916, Woodrow Wilson remarried. And the new Mrs. Wilson approved Beatrix's plans and the gardens went forward.
1: How sad about Ellen. But at least there was a small happy ending. Yeah, at least her yeah. vision for the
0: gardens were realized.
2: hmm mm-hmm.
0: All right. So one night, Beatrix gets invited to dinner at the president of Yale's house. The plan is for her to discuss the campus's garden plan. And while she's at this dinner, she meets Max Ferrand, who was a professor at Yale. And I don't know if you noticed by her last name, they hit it off.
1: Oh! oh. I see where this yes. is going. Okay.
0: <laughs> you catch my drift. Okay. okay. Yeah. So they were married in 1913. She was 41 and he was 44. Friends called the newlyweds Max Trix, which doesn't roll off the tongue so easily.
2: Yo, it's like those couple names that we have today, like Bennifer and Brangelina. Yeah, but I feel like those have a better <laughs> flow
0: and are easier to
2: say. Yeah, I mean, I'm not mad at it. She also gives me hope because she was in her 40s when she got married. So like, (laughs) there's still time. She accomplished so much, so it's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs)
0: Well, Max Trix lived in New Haven, Connecticut, so that Max could be close to Yale. In 1922, she got commissioned for her most notable project, the Dumbarton Mm -hmm. Oaks Estate in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. It was a 53 acre Mm -hmm. estate for diplomat Robert Woods Bliss and his wife, Mildred Barnes Bliss. And so since the clients were diplomats, they traveled around the world. So Beatrix would create detailed drawings for the project and then send them to the clients so that they could really visualize what she was planning to put on their property and for them to Mm. approve. So she created around 1,200 drawings and did several full-scale mock-ups for them to see when they actually were on site. Hot
1: diggity dang! (laughs) How long did that project take? I
0: will leave you in suspense because we'll talk about that a while later. Oh, man. Sorry. I'll leave you you hanging, but only for a little while. All right. In 1926, though... Max resigned his post at Yale and took a job as the head of the new Huntington Library in San Marino, California. That Mm. was not so ideal because she was in the middle of working on Dumbarton Oaks, and now she would be across the country. It's much farther California from Washington, D.C. than New Haven. Mm. So California was definitely a professional setback for Beatrix at the beginning. There were two other landscape designers that dominated the commissions yeah. on the West Coast. And so it was really hard for her to break into the scene there.
2: And let me guess, they were both men.
0: Surprisingly, no. You would think so. Oh. But uh-huh. it was one woman, Florence Yock, hmm. and a man, Lockwood DeForest. So she got shut out of a lot of jobs, including...
1: No, wait. Seriously? That's his
2: name? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lockwood the Forest.
1: I want to be Nurjiri Architecture. <laughs> wait, what? Nurjiri the
0: de... Architect. Be... Oh, you mean yeah, because he's a the... landscape
1: wait. designer and his name's Forest? Yeah. Uh, or maybe
2: I could be. You have to be like
1: um, Nurjiri the House. Yes. <laughs> the skyscraper. Jessica the building. Houseman. <laughs> like it? Okay, sorry. Very important (laughs) note that I had to say.
0: (laughs) Okay. She was shut out of many jobs, including working on the extensive grounds of the Huntington Library where her husband worked. Hmm. She was able to build herself a studio that connected the director's house on site, but the rest of the grounds were looked over by another designer. She did get some projects like the master plan for the Santa Barbara Botanical Garden and some consulting work at the Caltech campus. However, Caltech treated her more like a volunteer and paid Florence Yock for similar work at the same time. Wait. Yeah. What? So she got fed up with them and told them that her half amateur, half charitable status was not OK and moved on.
2: Ha, digga, Dan. I love how she stands up for herself. Yeah. You go, girl. And
0: now that I'm thinking about it, it, it was Florence Yock, which was the other woman and Beatrix and they were like Mm -hmm. kind of hiring them for the same work do you think that if
1: it Mm -hmm. were two men they would have gotten away with that
2: oh for sure like they both would have gotten equal pay so there's a history of this
1: I think that if there would have been another man involved either Beatrix would not have been involved at all or she just wouldn't have gotten paid well
0: that's kind of my point I guess is like I feel like they could have. they felt like they could get away with paying both women because they were both women. It was like, oh, we'll just pay both of them a little bit and they'll both kind of do something similar mm-hmm. and see what we get.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah. like two women make up one man Probably. or something. I think
0: uh, more often it's just a a man wouldn't have stood for it.
2: Mm-hmm. Good point. Mm. So did uh, Beatrix, what did she do after dropping out of Caltech?
0: Right. So she started
2: traveling cross
0: country to work on various projects, including Dumbarton Oaks, which she was still working on. Um, She worked on that until 1951 when she was 79 years old.
2: Whoa, she was 79. Right. So
0: many years. So to answer your question, Nergity, that means that the project took 29 years.
2: I know.
0: So the property was a private estate from 1921 to 1940, and the Bliss couple donated the estate to Harvard to be used as a research center and a public garden. So Jessica, you can go visit it (gasps) post-quarantine.
2: That's so cool. I think I've actually heard of this place, but I always thought it was referred to as like its art exhibitions, but now I feel like I have to see it just to see Beatrix work. Yes. Definitely
1: an arc venture. That's right. Yes,
0: another arc venture. And I think in 2005, Venturi Scott Brown designed a new library for the site. So more arc ventures Ooh. to be had. Yeah.
2: Oh, man. Oh, man.
0: So while Beatrix was commuting coast to coast, she spent a lot of time up at her family's home in Maine, Reef Point. And she ended up doing a lot of work on Mount Desert Island for people, including the gardens for John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s mansion in Seal Harbor. Rockefeller was also building a network of carriage roads on the island, and he wanted to make them open to the public. He enlisted Beatrix to plant and design the roadsides so that they took advantage of the views and that they looked like they were part of the natural landscape. These roads and much of the island eventually would become Acadia National Park, which both Beatrix and Rockefeller were early supporters of.
1: Oh, that's so nice. I've wanted to check that place out. It looks so beautiful in pictures. Now I want to visit it even more. Right.
0: I've always wanted to go to Acadia, but I had no idea that she had done that or that that's where she lived.
2: Mm-hmm. That's so cool.
0: So her largest West Coast project was redesigning Occidental College's campus in Los Angeles. Charles H. Thorne donated money to build a new auditorium in honor of his late wife, and the campus needed to be redesigned to accommodate the new building. Thorne had seen Beatrix's work at the University of Chicago campus and requested her for the design. So she designed a quad using mature California oaks with the library at one end and the new auditorium at the other. Even now, Occidental College continues to be ranked in the top 10 on several most beautiful college campuses lists. Go Beatrix! Hey, girl, hey! So she worked with the college for five years on the project until Max retired from the library. In 1941, they both retired and returned to the East Coast. They went to live at Reef Point in Maine, and there they created a landscape study center on the property. After Max's death, though, Beatrix couldn't afford the upkeep of the property and the study center, since she was putting most of her own money into it, there wasn't like an endowment. So she sadly had the house torn down and sold Reef Point mm. in 1955. She moved to a cottage on Garland Farm nearby and worked on the design of those gardens well into her 80s. And she lived there until her death on February 28, 1959, at the age of 87.
2: Wow. This story is incredible. She did so much. Even until the very end.
0: Yeah, she yeah. really loved working in the garden and she did it right up until the end. All right, we're almost at the end of our episode. But before we leave you, we have to tell you who our caryatid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a karyotid is?
2: Sure. So for some background, a karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. So, each episode, we'll choose a Karyatid, a woman who is working today furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode.
0: Thanks. So, without further ado, this week's Karyatid is... (laughs) Wendy J. Miller. Yeah. Yay! So Wendy is the current president of the American Society of Landscape Architects, which you'll remember is the organization that Beatrix was a founding member of.
2: Oh. Is she
0: also a fellow? She is also a fellow of the ASLA. Thanks for asking her, oh, Yeah, I was wondering. <laughs> so Wendy is a registered landscape architect, and she focuses on urban design and transportation. Her consulting firm, Wendy Miller Landscape Architecture, provides expertise in corridor design solutions, public involvement, and planning strategies to prepare communities for new and disruptive transportation technologies that are on the horizon. She believes that having landscape architects involved in shaping transportation corridors is critical since these are ever present in our public spaces nowadays. Don't you think that's interesting having a landscape architect designing transportation? corridors like that, I always think of that more as like a structural engineer or a civil engineer.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. But if we think about how much space highways take, especially here in Houston, it would be really lovely if the landscape was more integrated. Yeah, Actually, I heard a long time ago about a project in Mexico that they were wrapping highway pillars in greenery. And on top of looking a lot nicer, it also helps clean the air. Mm. I mean, We already have landscape architects working on pedestrian transportation projects like the High Line in New York. So why not vehicular as well? Yeah, I
0: think it's a really smart idea to have landscape architects involved with that kind of work. So I love that her firm is doing that.
2: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I just like the idea of this character. It kind of makes this whole episode come full circle because we have Beatrix as the founding member of the ASLA and then fast forward to the present where we have Wendy and she's the current president. So cool.
0: Yeah, it's a really yeah, good yeah, bookend. True. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, it's here. The end of our episode. We want to thank mm. CMYK, fellow Syracuse graduates, for our music. You can find them on Spotify. Special thanks to John W., our technical producer, and most of all to you, listeners. Thank you so, so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Beatrix and Wendy along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies.
1: Please let us know what you thought of our episode. We are very excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com leave us a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SheBuildsPodcast and on Twitter at SheBuildsPod. Until then, bye. bye! Bye!